Our reading tonight is uh, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're reading chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, um, please get it out. So 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to taking a believing life, a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and thrashes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? 
but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible on an electronic device, it would be good to turn to 1 Corinthians 9. We're, we're going to carry on looking at the, the church at Corinth. And what you have to say about the church at Corinth was it was an exciting place to be. I mean, there was everything going on. And I, I just sometimes, as I read through this letter, I imagine what were the services like. And uh, there would be people who were dramatically, radically meeting Christ. They were serving Christ. And Christ was being shown in multitudes of different ways in the church in Corinth. And in a lot of ways, the church in Corinth really it exemplifies the radical wonder of the gospel. And you, you catch that in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 28. When it says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. You know, if you go back and you look at the world in their day, you'll recognize that those three things were the division lines in their world. They were the division lines that no one ever crossed. So the Jews and the Gentiles, a Jew would never allow a Gentile even to come into their house. Never to sit at the same table with them for a meal. There was a total division. You're an outsider. I won't touch you. The slave and the free. The the slaves were there to serve. The free were there to tell the slaves what to do. You never actually came together. And the men and the women also was incredible division in their day. And and what Paul says there in Galatians is this. That the gospel shatters all the boundaries. That, That when a man or a woman, a Greek or a Gentile, someone who is incredibly posh, or those who aren't, that when they come into the family of Christ, everyone is as an incredibly beloved child of the living God. And that's a radical nature of the gospel. Now, that was very much, in a lot of ways, I think that is what exploded the church in Corinth, was this invasion of life that had come into so many as the gospel was preached, first through Paul and then others, and this, there was an influx of those who were brought a knowledge of Christ through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. But Paul now writes to the church a little bit later. He's been off, he's been ministering in other places, and as he writes back, he is very much addressing problems, issues that there are within the church, questions probably that had been forwarded to him by different individuals. And tonight, we come to chapter 9, where really what we discover in this chapter is that, that Paul has to defend himself. 
Paul has to defend himself. We're going to see three things here tonight. We're going to see a Christ-revealed gospel, a Christ-centered gospel, and a Christ-consuming goal. Paul brings all those things out here in chapter 9. But I want to begin tonight, first of all, by looking at a a, a Christ-revealing gospel. And one of the things this chapter brings out to us is that Paul was always the problem apostle. Paul was always the problem apostle. All the other apostles had lived with Jesus during the three years of his ministry. All of them could say, as John says in 1 John, that they were the eyewitnesses, the ear witnesses, the smell witnesses, and the touch witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and his ministry. All of them. Paul couldn't say that. Paul wasn't around Jesus during his ministry. And not only that, he also sort of explains the problem in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And it's worth just sort of recognizing that he recognized this struggle that some had with him. And so he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 9. He said that even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul said, look, I was someone who persecuted the early church. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his wisdom, brought Paul to himself. And the interesting thing is, we'll look at this a little bit more in a minute. But the interesting thing is, every other apostle learned the gospel from the lips of Jesus. They they had actually been there. They listened to it. Paul was different. It tells us this in Galatians chapter 1, if you want to look it up. that, That actually... Paul learned the gospel from Jesus after he ascended into heaven. And Jesus came down. We don't know what in the world it means. Maybe you get some hints in 2 Corinthians. But but the Lord Jesus came from his ascended throne directly to Paul and taught Paul individually the gospel. So in that sense, Paul was always the odd odd, uh, apostle. And he talks about at the end of his book, he said, I'm the one that was uh, called out of season. And here in the heart of this book of the 1 Corinthians, it seems like there was problems within the church at Corinth precisely for that point. And so the first thing that Paul does here in verses 1 down to verse 18, in that what seemed to be a rather strange uh, sort of uh, description that he's looking at about whether he has the right to work, and then saying even though he does, he doesn't want to work, that, that at the heart of that is Paul is simply this. He's defending his right to be an apostle. And let me just say out there, we have up there behind me, is that the gospel is God's divine interpretation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's radical. And what Paul has to do here, it's the first thing he has to do is defend himself. Why, why should they listen to him at Corinth? You, you, you pick up a little bit of the problem, if you're back in chapter 4, verse 8, and you, you'll pick up some of the problem that... At least some there within the church at Corinth, they thought they had grown beyond Paul. They said, look, we're kings. (laughs) You know, we've come into a a deeper, more sophisticated understanding of spiritual things and uh, of, of what Christ calls us to. We've had deeper experiences in Paul. Just come along to our services and see the fireworks that happen every Sunday. They're dramatic and, and really, you know, when we think about what we know and what we do, and we look at you, Paul, we think, look, we're kings and we're not sure about you. And we've got some questions. 
And it really comes out when you go to 2 Corinthians, and if you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, verse 5 and 6, let me just read those, but you can look for yourself later. Paul, a bit later, he writes another letter, and at the end of it, he really comes to the heart of what seems to have been part of the problem there in Corinth. He says, I do not think that I am the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do not, but I do have knowledge. We may have, we may, we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Do you see what's happening there? Some had come along, maybe in the church of Corinth, they'd risen up and they were brilliant. (laughs) They were brilliant communicators. They probably were brilliant in some of their experiences they told other people about. Maybe they were brilliant in kind of some kinds of the, the spiritual gifts that they had. And they had become known as super apostles. And they looked at Paul and they said, really? You're going to listen to him? I mean, he's so passe. <laughs> I, I mean, haven't you grown beyond that and... Don't you want something that's far more spiritual and deep? Now, that's probably behind, and I know I'm sort of warming up to this, so forgive me, but I'm just trying to help you understand the passage. That's probably what this whole discussion in chapter 9, verses 1 to 18 is about. Because within the Roman world, which had earned, sort of grown up from the Greek world, The people who went to the Millennium Centers and the the big names that people went to see, they weren't rock groups. They were speakers. That was the Roman world. They were into rhetoric. They were into the person who could come and they could hold an audience by their communication. And therefore, they held their big events. And when they held their big events, you paid for it. (laughs) You gave money. And that's how you knew the person who got more money than everybody else. They were the better rhetorician than everyone else because everybody wanted to come listen to them. And here they were saying, look, you look at Paul and he never takes any money. That's how bad he is. He can't be like us because everyone wants to give us money because we're such great communicators. And Paul there is arguing firstly in verses 7 down to 12, very briefly, it's the argument for uh, the fact that those who do minister the gospel should rightly receive remuneration. Paul argues that first of all, he says, look, I could ask for remuneration. I could ask for you to support me. I have every right before God to do that. But, in verse 12, he says, but I choose not to. And he says in verses 13 down to 18, he says he chooses not to because he wants to make the gospel absolutely free for everyone. So he refused to accept what he could have asked for. Okay. That's what's in the passage. Let's just land that. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Why, 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 Why do we all know about that? Well, the first thing that Paul's wanting to do is he's defending... That the apostles are unique. When we talk about God revealing himself in the world. We need to realize that biblical revelation contains two things. Event and explanation. And by that what I mean is this. That when we talk about revelation that we look at in the Bible. 
it always is that God first acts and then God explains <laughs> what he's done. That's biblical revelation. And you find it throughout the Bible. And he'll, first of all, you find that God will act at different points to bring his people out of Egypt. And then he will raise up a prophet like Moses to explain to the people precisely what God has said. In other words, God doesn't leave it up for us to figure out what he's actually saying and doing. But all through history, God acts to bring men to himself. And he explains what he has done in his actions. Now, in the Old Testament, that's fairly clear because you go and you see the prophets and the prophets say, thus saith the Lord. And that's a fairly clear statement. But what about the New Testament? Well, if you turn over to Acts chapter 10, and it's worth just looking at this for just a minute. In Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 43, if you have a Bible with you tonight. Peter is called to some Gentiles, some God-fearers. And as he goes to them, he suddenly recognizes he needs to explain to them the gospel. And he tells them in verses 39 to 43, he tells them this. He says twice, he said, first of all, in verse 39, we're witnesses to everything that's happened. We were there with Jesus. You you want to ask what happened with Jesus' life? The apostles other than... Paul, they said, look, we were right there. I can tell you what it smelled like. I can tell you who was around in the crowd because I was there. We were witnesses to both all the actions and all the teachings of Jesus. For three years, we were with him. And then he goes down to verse 41, and then we recognize that actually we were God's chosen witnesses. In other words, we didn't just come on board and say, hey, we'll do this and we'll sort of take notes for you. No, God specifically from his throne chose us. To be witnesses. And in order, verse 42, in order that God would command them to tell them all that Jesus had done. You see there, God acting, God explaining through his appointed witnesses. Friends, look, the big question when you come to the Bible is why should I listen to it? That's a big question. And and a lot of people, especially when you come like to the New Testament, they say, well, you know, I'm not so sure I can really listen to it. Why should I listen to what it says in the New Testament? Why should I listen, especially when, when some of the things it says in the New Testament come up against what culture says is wrong? Or are things that I myself personally don't agree with? Why should I listen? My answer would be specifically this. There's only one reason. It's because it is spoken by God's apostle who are God's spokesmen. There's no other reason. It's, it's God spoken. Then we need to bow down and say, look, I, I find this a struggle, but I need to get my head around it because I'm not God. You are. So let me just wrestle with what does that mean? So Paul defends his apostleship here because he's defending the gospel. The gospel is from God. It's not what we think. But it's something that he's revealed. And it's interesting, just sort of, I think as an aside, it's interesting to see that so often these new super leaders that arose both there in Corinth and, and I think also that arise today because there always are people who want to follow in their footsteps, I think, who claim to have better communication skills. Or be honest, they're a lot better than I am. I just have to say, wow. 
And, and a lot of times I think we have deeper spiritual experiences, a deeper understanding. I want you to notice in Corinth, they're much better at evangelizing the saved than they are the lost. That's a mark of these super apostles. They're great evangelizing the saved. They don't mind if the lost come in. I'm not saying they do. If anyone wants to come in and to buy into their vision, they're thrilled with that. But their real focus is always upon the saved, where the gospel is always upon the lost that they might come in to be with the saved. That's something to chalk up in your head wherever you go, to this church or any other church, is to ask yourself, where is the focus? Who is it really focused on, this ministry? And the other thing I think it's just to, to recognize is that it just reminds us the incredible struggle of the church. You know what? Every church walks on a knife edge. And it's easy to fall off on either side. You can either fall off on the one side that wants to so accommodate the loss that it loses the gospel. We want everybody to feel loved. You know, we want everybody to come in. So it so falls off on the one side that it ignores what God says and says, we just want to love you. Or you can fall off the other way where it's only focused upon those who are God's people and it separates itself from the world and says how horrible the world is, but we don't want to be involved in that because it's too messy. So it only focuses over there. God calls the church to be centered on the gospel that both reaches out to the world and reaches to those who are in the church. And, And to be like Jesus, who they could say of Jesus, they could say this, he's a friend of sinners and he's a good shepherd. <laughs> That's what we want to be. We want to be like Jesus. The other thing, and I think it comes out really at the end of verse 2, when Paul says there in reference to the Corinthians, for you are my seal of, the, of my apostleship in the Lord. I think he also is indicating there that it's only the gospel that produces radical fruit. Now, again, you have every right to test this church by this Test. This is a little bit test, I think, of any good church. Is, is there within it radical production of fruit from the gospel? And I think Paul sort of shows how that was happening in Corinth when he says in chapter 6, verse 9, he says this. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. <laughs> but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you see the radical reality that was happening in that church? He said, look, you, you know the gospel's working when God radically brings into new life new people. And that's a mark of the gospel. So Paul begins, first of all, by just reminding them of a Christ-revealed gospel through the apostles. The second thing I think he shows them as well that is that the, those who are within the ministry of God's people are to have a Christ-centered Mindset, And that really comes out there in verses 19, I think, down to verse 23. And Paul a lot, Paul applies to his own life two aspects that I think he got from the Lord Jesus Christ as the model and the understanding of his own life. Now, I think that's interesting. I, I think most of us, when we read about Paul, 
we, we probably say, you know what, he's, he's a radical. <laughs> but I'm not sure about a model for ministry. And, and I, you know, I can understand that. I mean, here was Paul. He was, uh, he was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He lived his life under fear of others trying to come and either to beat him or to rob him. Doesn't really sound like a very inviting job description, does it? <laughs> and you say, look, is that what I'm called to do? You know, when the gospel comes into any life, it shows itself differently. There is not one way to live out the gospel. Every life works it out differently. But I think what Paul does here is in the midst of that radical calling he had, he shows us two principles that he had learned from the Lord Jesus. Let me just really hammer those home really quick. Firstly, verse 19, that we are to be servants to all men. We are to be servants to all men. He said, though I am free... And belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I want you to notice there. Paul equates freedom not with the right that I can do whatever I want. But he equates freedom in Christ, coming into Christ with being called now to serve all men. Now where did he get that from? I think he got it from our Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called together all the disciples and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, I, the creator of the universe, I exercise my authority to become a man. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, even a servant, even under death. That's how I exercise my right and my authority is to come to serve others. To bring them to a knowledge of Christ. And notice how that's exactly what Paul does. Just look at verses 19 down to 23. Count the number of wins in those verses. Just look down to the word win. How many do you find? Anyone want to be brave and tempt it? There's five. Paul just goes through there and he said, look, you know, I want to exercise my freedom to serve men in every category. So in, in verse 19, I, I just want to win as many as possible. And in verse 20, I, I want to win Jews. And then he says down in verse, uh, uh, in verse uh, 20, but later on as well, I want to win those who are under the law. In verse 21, I want to live for those who are not under the law. And then in case I've missed anybody, verse 22, I want to win the weak. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, I see my life and my calling it to serve others. Just as the Lord Jesus served me. And I want now to use my life to bring them to a knowledge of the radical gospel. Whoever they are, wherever they're at. And the second thing he says, he tells us is that 
in that pursuit of freedom to serve all men, he says, I am willing to become all things to all men. Verse 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Where did he get that? Well, didn't he get it from our Lord Jesus? Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus, though being God, thought did not hold on to that, but exercised his position and authority to become a nothing, born in a stable, in order that he might become all things, that he might win some in his incarnation. And Paul said, look, you know, that same mind captivates my life. I want to be like Jesus. And I want to do whatever, all things to win all men. Now, let me just break that down for just a, a, a little bit about what that means, because that's a radical statement. Number one is it says that the calling of the cross crosses every cultural boundary. That's the first thing. Every cultural boundary is crossed by the gospel. Here, we see it very clearly between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul's willing to sit on either side, even though they would never be together. Paul says it crosses every cultural boundary. And, and really what it's saying is this, that the gospel is for everyone. It isn't just for some people, it's for everyone. Think in your own mind for just a minute the people that you would think are least likely to come to the gospel. The gospel's for them. The gospel's for everyone. It knows no boundaries. And you see this in Jesus because, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus, Luke chapter 15, the main accusation against Jesus was he was a friend of sinners. Now think about that a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ, in all that he was, could sit down in a group of sinners and they didn't feel uncomfortable. They'd be willing to call him a friend. Even in all his glory. And the gospel goes and penetrates everywhere. Now let me just really just pin that down in two ways. First of all, what does that say about holiness? Well, look. Holiness isn't refined to one culture. (laughs) What the Bible does, unlike uh, other religions. The Bible doesn't say you need to go back and to live in the first century. In order to be pleasing to God. What the Bible does is it gives you principles of what does it mean to live a righteous life according to God. And that's what you find in the Bible. Ten Commandments is a sort of what you might call shorthand summary, but you find it throughout the Bible that you get a shorthand of what does it mean to be righteous. And then what the Bible says is, look, whatever culture you live in, you work out that righteousness. You don't compromise what the Bible says, but you actually dress it into your culture. That's the first thing. The Bible and holiness transcends every culture. But the second thing which I would say sort of with that is be really careful never to anoint your culture as being the ultimate divine culture. Okay? And this is one of the problems. Let me put it like this. If, If Highfields is your church... Let's say you came to university and and God in his mercy radically opened your heart to Christ. 
Your temptation is to think that everything in the way we do things here in Highfields is the right way to do it. It's not. It's just the way we do it. I remember when I was over in South Korea and I was sitting with God's people in South Korea. I found it a really odd because they stood when I would stand and they stand and they sat when I would uh, or uh, they would they would stand when I would sit and they would sit when I would stand and when they came to prayer and we know how we are we're very British most of us that we all very politely pray one at a time I remember going to the the Korean churches in Korea and 500 people would all stand up and at exactly the same time, at the top of their voices, they were all praying at the same time. And I felt like, what world am I in? The gospel clothes itself in every culture and there's nothing wrong with that. If we, as long as we are actually serving Christ... And we are aligning ourselves with what his word says. That is pleasing to God, even though we may do it different than every other church. So never think that your church culture is the only true way to do it and everybody else is less. That's a false step to make. Finally, I just want to close with verse uh, down to verse 24 to the end. And that's a Christ-consuming goal. Very quickly, I just want you to notice one thing. Paul lived his life, verse 24, to win a prize. Paul says, I'm running to win a prize. I wonder what your prize is. What are you living for? Paul says, I'm learning, I am living every day to win the prize. And I think that prize was to stand before Christ one day at the last day to look into his face and to see him as he is and in that moment to be changed like unto Christ and to hear the words out of his mouth that would go, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think that's a price he lived for. I've got one life to live, Lord. It's like a penny. I want to spend it well. I won't get it back. But I want to live my life in order That I might please you with the life and the calling and the race you've uniquely given me. No one else has it, but I have it. I want to live for that day. Paul lived for a prize. The second thing I want you to notice is that Paul focused because of that to make sure his life was ordered to win that prize. And Paul goes on a little bit later and he says in verse 9 or 29... Excuse me, 27. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. I don't think Paul there is talking about that we need to give ourselves to self-mutilation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is what, what every athlete does. That they know if they want to get good, they discipline themselves to get good. And that means that in the very act, every discipline, if you're a runner or whatever your skill is, maybe a singer or a musician behind us, every single person knows that the only way you get good at something is that you discipline yourself to leave other things. And you spend your time that you might increase your abilities and your skills. And Paul says, look, I beat my body down. In order to focus myself to be all that Christ wants me to be. Paul wants to tell us there's a radical gospel. 
that can change every life in every culture, anywhere, in any situation. That gospel is a Christ-revealed gospel. It's not our gospel. We don't think it up. We don't figure it out. We don't modify it because we live in a different situation, cold, culture, and age. No, it's a God-Christ-revealed gospel that God himself has given to us. And the way to serve that gospel is a Christ-focused life. It's a Christ-centered gospel, and therefore I want to live out my life like Jesus. I want to make myself a servant to all. I want to give myself to all and make myself whatever is necessary within a pleasing uh, boundaries of what is pleasing to God to make myself whatever I need to to reach others. And I want to have a Christ-consuming goal that I might live today for that day. Because I don't know when it's coming. But when I stand there, I just want to look into his face and to be with him. Let's bow together in prayer. Most gracious Lord, as we hear the cry of Paul here with his focus upon the gospel that you gave, upon the gospel that molded his life, upon the gospel that directed him for that great goal in his life. We ask that you'll give us something of that same excitement and energy that we may live that out in our lives. Lord, each of us lives in a different place. Each of us has a totally different world that we inhabit. But we pray that we may inhabit it with a passion to make Jesus known. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.